Welcome to the Bounty Zero X podcast. I'm your host, Angelo Adam, founder and CEO of Bounty Zero X. Bounty Zero X is a decentralized bounty hunting network powered by the BNTY token. So today is September 24th, 2018, and my guest on the show is David Johnston. David is a CEO of several technology startups and angel venture stage investor firms. Uh, he's advisor to a number of growth stage companies and open source software projects in the blockchain space. Most notably, he's CEO and I think he's advisor or chairman for Factum. So and he's also a co-founder of SmartDrops.network. So David, welcome to the Bounty Zero X podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I serve as the chairman for Factum. Uh, I've got a family office called Yeoman's Capital and been involved in a lot of open source projects. So happy to jump into that today. So tell me, David, a little bit about the background and what companies you've been working with and how you initially got into the cryptocurrency space. Sure. Um, David Johnston, serve as chairman for Factum, managing director of a family office called Yeoman's Capital. Been in the Bitcoin space since about 2012. Been building technology companies since the Internet 1.0 days. But I was really lucky that a friend told me about Bitcoin in 2012. And after he finished explaining it, I was like, wait, wait, wait. There's a non-governmental currency that will never be inflated by politicians and is controlled by math. Yeah, I'd like to take all my green pieces of paper and switch for that, right? And instantly I was like, you know, this is the alternative I've been looking for. I was already a free market economics nerd and uh, I'd been studying, you know, Mises and Hayek. And so I was already looking for an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And so it took me about four months, but I, I switched over my dollars into Bitcoin. And this is when Bitcoin is going from 10 to 12 to 14 to, to $20. And so I was sort of rushing to do it as fast as I could, but it took me about four months. It wasn't very easy at the time. But that, that move gave me a lot of capital as, uh, as Bitcoin went up to sort of reinvest in the ecosystem. So I ended up co-founding the Bit Angels, Michael Turpin and Sam Yilmaz back in March of uh, 2013, or May of 2013, and then writing the paper on decentralized applications. And that sort of put me on this track to start a venture fund in this space, focused on decentralized applications, and now finally running a, a family office uh, Yeoman's Capital, where we pretty much only focus on crypto and blockchain. Like we pay our employees all in crypto. All of our investments are in crypto, 100% forwards and backwards. So yeah, it's been a really exciting last six years. And now I'm getting to help with more and more of these open source initiatives, like open savings initiatives, smart drops initiative. And uh, yeah, happy to talk about that today. So at the time in 2012 or 2013, what were you working on and what what uh, projects were you involved with? Basically, from the beginning, uh, drawn into the idea of assets on the blockchain. And so right from the start, I started messaging the developers about how we could put stocks and bonds and real estate and that sort of thing onto the blockchain. But it really was difficult back in 2012 to sort of figure out how to do that. People had proposals for or called color coins at the time, and colored coins were you know, okay, take a Bitcoin transaction, add a little metadata. How do we interpret that to be an asset or a different something different than the than the token is itself? And ended up 
reading a lot of white papers and uh, came across J.R. Willett when uh, he approached the VidAngels back in August of 2013 with his MasterCoin proposal. Basically, the idea to write metadata into Bitcoin and then interpret it and have a separate token where people could basically fund the development of these assets on the blockchain. And so did a lot of due diligence on that, ended up writing an informational report on the project and got involved, volunteered on the board of directors for the MasterCoin Foundation and uh, just really saw things take off. There was obviously a lot of pent up interest in assets on the blockchain and uh, JR really tapped into that but there's sort of only so much you could do on top of Bitcoin, given the limited scripting and sort of needing to jam data into very limited data fields, either using Opreturn or multisig at the time. And so when Vitalik came up with Ethereum and uh, proposed first as you know improvements to Mastercoin protocol and then eventually realizing he needed to roll it out as a wholly separate protocol, that really led to a whole new wave of innovation where people said, oh, we can run full scripts on a new blockchain. We can have sort of this idea of Turing complete smart contracts really became popular. And that's where most of the innovation moved to. And that was, you know, late 13, people were working on MasterCoin. And then really by, you know, late 14, most people had transitioned their efforts to Ethereum. But a couple of great projects still got built in the early days in MasterCoin, uh, MadeSafe in April of 2014, and then uh, later Tether, which still has billions of dollars of assets on that protocol on top of uh, BTC today. So, you know, it's interesting to see it evolve. There's also Dash, I remember. It was also, That's right. There's Dash, and then there was like Red Coins and... Mm. Next and, uh, you know, all the, yeah, bunch of things came out of that. But that sort of started... Like all those permissions blockchains... Exactly, right? Started this sort of cascade event of people running experiments. So you were involved with all that. And then where did you go from there? What did you start working on and how did you get to Factum? So after I wrote the general theory of decentralized applications and sort of set out this model, I said, hey, we can take the best practices from Bitcoin, right? A peer-to-peer network anybody can access, a blockchain backend for all the historical information, a token to incentivize behavior, and all wrapped in open source. Let's take those four principles, call those decentralized applications, and build more things that check off all those boxes, right? And so it was sort of, well, we can do this with smart contracts, we can incentivize distributed compute, distributed bandwidth. And so I ended up building a a venture fund, uh, the DApps Fund, in 2014 built on that thesis. It was probably one of the first uh, venture funds to be all crypto in, only invest in tokens, and then distribute all crypto out, right? So it was really end-to-end a token-based venture fund in April of 2014. And so that sort of uh, was my life for the next few years is sort of looking for projects that would fit the DApps model, who were trying to innovate in new ways. And a lot of great projects came out around that time, Ethereum, but also Storage and MadeSafe and and a bunch of others. And that sort of set the stage for the next wave of the industry as those protocols all matured, especially Ethereum with ERC-20. So with your 
uh, venture fund. Did you take on outside investors or was it all, was it a closed fund? Was it all in-house or how did you, were you, you, you were primarily managing it and do you still manage that? Uh, it was a small fund. It was really a couple of close uh, friends and partners that were all invested in crypto already. It's sort of the uh, the BitAngels model where we were all Bitcoin nerds and we wanted to reinvest our Bitcoin in, in Bitcoin companies and get Bitcoin projects. Um, but no, that was a, a two-year vehicle. So that ran in 2014 to uh, 2015 and we distributed the tokens out to all the, the partners and from there, I had become the chairman of Factum. We were the first investor in there in 2015. And uh, I sort of saw the big problem that we needed to solve next is scalability. It was clear that, you know, the mainstream was headed towards blockchain, but blockchain scalability wasn't ready for the mainstream, right? I mean, pa- Patrick Byrne was starting to talk about putting Wall Street on the blockchain in his quest to uh, disrupt old institutions like the DCCC. And so, and really take stocks and, and all those traditional assets and put them on the blockchain. But Bitcoin can handle seven transactions a second, which translates into three or 400,000 transactions a day. And you go talk with these stock markets and big banks and they're doing billions of trades a day, right? And so it was clear that we needed more scalability. And what I saw in Factum and with what Paul Snow invented was the ability for that technology and its data-first approach to handle much larger volumes of information and anchor them to a blockchain. Um, Bitcoin and Ethereum today are where Factum puts its anchors and basically extends all the security, immutability, timestamping from these big public ledgers to all of the data that is published on Factum. <laughs> As a cool example, during the launch, I think shortly after, they took the entire Gutenberg library and they hashed all the books and secured them in Factum and anchored them to Bitcoin, right? So you could show that here we took 40 gigabytes of books, right? We created these very efficient proofs by hashing all of the material and then we published all those hashes in a public blockchain in Factum so they're persistent and, and stored in the network. And then we took that proof and we we put it into Bitcoin and backed it up even more, right? And so in, in a few hours, we had anchored more information to uh, to Bitcoin than had been published in the entire history of Bitcoin, if you will. And so that was sort of a, a cool proof point that they could handle. This was a way where you could handle very large amounts of information and still get all the advantages of publishing it on a blockchain. So we we delved a little bit into your background, but that's only because we wanted to. I mean, the, the primary, you know, this episode is really focusing on your current project, your newest project that you're working on, which is SmartDrops.network. So I wanted to give our listeners a little bit of background uh, about your involvement in the blockchain space, but I also want to focus on what you're working on now in the most recent uh, project, which is SmartDrops. So. Smart Jobs is the goal of Smart Jobs is to build communities with targeted token distributions. So the benefits of these targeted distributions includes the ability to enhance community growth, raise brand awareness, and incentivize early adopters that are aligned with the values of their uh, project. So 
who came up with the idea and where did you guys start with it? And tell me a little bit about how the project got started. Sure. So these days I've got a family office called uh, Yeoman's Capital. And I've got a small staff of guys, Mark, Gavin, and Henry, that I work with to sort of push forward the industry and these open source initiatives. And what we saw was the market had evolved from Bitcoin in 2013 is all about payments. You know, you have the wave in 2016, 2017 is all about ERC-20 and people doing these token sales. And then you have what's emerged this year is really around security tokens. And I think that'll be the big wave next year is sort of creating companies and tokenizing all their equity. That's cool, but it it felt like security tokens make sense for companies, but it felt like there was a missing piece for open source software projects that didn't necessarily need to be companies, right? And so the question is like, how can we preserve the permissionless, innovative nature of blockchain without trying to shoehorn everything into a security token, right? And it's like security tokens are fine for what they are, but how do we carve out space where any developer in the world can say, I'm launching this new piece of software and I want to build a community around it and let people use it and without necessarily needing to do a token sale either. You have to go back to the reason token sales started is back in 2010, 2009, 2010, it was very egalitarian to get involved in Bitcoin, right? You ran up the node, you could mine on your computer, you could get a few of these units and really be involved in the system from the beginning. But as mining got more and more industrialized, you couldn't really enter Bitcoin like that. You had to buy Bitcoin, right? And the same thing has happened with all the other protocols, even with those experimenting with proof of stake, it really became very specialized over time. And so people came up with this idea, okay, here's how we'll build a community, even though mining isn't really the way we're going to distribute the tokens of the system. It's going to be, we're going to let people donate to a foundation or how whatever methods that they wanted in order to purchase tokens in this, this system. And that was, that was a good method for a while, but and sort of the hype and things sort of really overwhelmed the original community building purpose, right? Like when I was talking with Vitalik of planning the token sale for Ethereum, their goal was to get 10, 20,000 people involved in their community and really have a well-distributed, well-decentralized base of people that were interested in its success. And they succeeded in that. I think they got 17,000 participants if memory serves. Yeah, I was one of them. I happened to also <laughs> participate in the Ethereum crowd sale. Right, and so you remember all the energy and uh, the excitement people had that they could take part in that, right? And a lot of people just put in one Bitcoin. I think that was the average contribution, if, if I'm right. And so that was a great way to get a lot of people involved. But now token sales have become, are you an accredited investor? Do you meet all these qualifications? What jurisdiction are you in? So they've become much more narrow. And we see token sales where the entire thing is taken up by 10 VPs. Well, that's <laughs> that kind of misses the point, right? The point was to have a way to build community and distribute tokens to a large set of people. So we saw mining had its time. 
And then we saw token sales serve that role for a while. And so the question was, well, what, what's next? And I'm proposing smart drops as that next myth. It's not give a tiny fraction of your token to everybody with a Bitcoin or everybody with an, an Ether. It's let's target people, preferably that sign up and want to be involved in the community and get them a portion of the tokens from day one. Right. And I thought, I thought there's a bunch of projects that have sort of done this beautifully last year with, you know, what Polymath did with their token drop, effectively handing it out to 50,000 people was huge for, for building up their community. And they asked people to sign up and join their telegram and give them a little bit of information about who they are and do KYC and things like that. But there weren't any gatekeepers around, you know, do you have a million dollars to invest, to participate? Like it was very open for, for people to participate. And it gave them a couple hundred dollars at the time of, of uh, Polymath, right? And that was really effective. So I said, let's for, let's give this a name. Let's formalize this into a model and let's propose that people go and embrace this, this format as a way of, of building community because clearly it's not happening anymore with mining and with token sales. And I think that's really the key to making these projects successful. They are social networks. They are communities. And so I've seen a lot of people now do more and more variations of this. And so I think there's a lot of tools that need to be built and we're starting to see those pop up to support this smart drop model. Yeah. So there's a distinction between smart drops and airdrops. So airdrops typically consists of distributing tokens to a number of wallets. But the goal and the downside of them is that they have historically attracted, devalued the, the tokens because you're just giving them away. And they necessarily don't necessarily engage the community and they're just kind of distributed to a number of people and you don't necessarily know who those people are and can attract speculators or people who just get rid of the token. So you want to you know, grow the community and give the tokens to people, but then also ensure that the people are valuing those tokens and doing it and receiving the tokens and will become part of the community. So you guys are proposing this way to do this in a more intelligent, targeted manner. So how do you guys do that? What strategies do you use to kind of both, you know, more people in the community without necessarily having the downside of what just random airdrops uh, have? Well, let's start with first who you airdrop it to. You know, a lot of people have done airdrops to all Ethereum holders. But the problem is, you know, I log into my Ethereum wallet and I've got two and a half pennies worth of some random token I've never heard of, right? I don't care. I'm not going to go research it. It's just dust sitting in my wallet. And so the first thing is narrowing down the airdrop makes it more meaningful, right? Because let's say the value, just pull a number out of the air. Let's say the value is $10 million of this project. If you pick... 10 million addresses, it's not going to be a very meaningful amount to each person, right? A buck just isn't going to drive behavior, right? But let's narrow that down. Let's, if you're handing it to a million addresses, which still be a lot, it'd be at least $10, 
or if you're handing them to 100,000 addresses, which is probably, I think, getting into the right range, now you're handing $100 to every person that participates, right? And, you know, there's some complications as you get to larger and larger amounts. So I don't know if you want to give thousands of dollars per person, but I think somewhere in that 100 to $500 range uh, is probably really effective. And that, if you're presuming the project, somebody starting out at a, a small market value of like $10 million, if they're giving that to 50 or 100,000 people, one, that's a really big community, day one, it's offering people a meaningful amount of value, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, like Polymath did. And now I really care. And now it's a meaningful amount. And if I signed up for it, then I heard about it. I know other people that are interested in it because I heard a lot of the way people heard about it is just, you know, spread news about the airdrop that uh, Polymath did spread like wildfire just in the communities, right? And so, but most people were connected to a friend who said to them, hey, did you check out Polymath? Oh, and they're doing this token drop thing, you should sign up. And so you had a much deeper level of social connection. You had enough value that people actually would do some behaviors like sign up and to complete a KYC process so they're identified. Like you said, it's not just a random unknown address. I can email Bill a year later and say, hey, we just updated the software or here are these amazing types of progress that we've made in our project the last year, right? So you can get a dialogue going if you have an email address, if you have a way for them to be involved. And then they got everybody into Telegram, which was really successful. I think they had the first Telegram group to hit 50,000 people. And uh, (laughs) we found out there was a person size limit to telegram groups right which i think has now been increased but uh that was that was really amazing to see how fast something can grow if you aligned the incentives correctly so the great part about airdrops is that they can increase the or smart drops and airdrops is that you can grow your community quickly and involve people and raise awareness and then you have these tokens which you're sending people and the tokens are valued at base the tokens you're sending them you base off the value that the ICO, the upcoming ICO, is going to be, you know, selling the tokens to potential investors for. But do you have to give away these tokens that are being sold to investors, or do you think that it's possible also to have uh, airdrops where there is no ICO and they're just tokens that are being distributed to people for use on the platform? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think you have to have a token sale at all. I don't think you have to presume that they're being sold to purchasers. I mean, it all depends on the type of projects it is, uh, project it is. But you know, I, I don't think you have to have the presumption it's going to be sold at all. It has value if it's built in as a utility that accesses the piece of software that's built, right? And I think the the market will naturally come up with a price as soon as those tokens are in circulation and the market doesn't care whether they were sent to 100,000 people that signed up or they were sold in a token sale to uh, 1,000 people. At the end of the day, the question is, is the software valuable? Is it useful? And is there an easy, simple way to use the token in the system that makes sense? Right In the Factum system, you have to consume the software licenses to publish data to the network. And if there were no cost to publish, people would spam the network, right? So you have to have an anti-spam mechanism, which is a software license, 
right? And so it's a very simple, very straightforward conversion of software licenses into writing data into the system. And that's worked really well for their projects. So, and just to address the economic question that you asked earlier, which is, aren't you giving out all these tokens and doesn't that drive down the price? I would actually propose that it's massively additive to the market and to the community. Because if you think about it in the context of a software company, you have the cost of customer acquisition. How much money do you spend advertising your product to get one new person to sign up and say that's $5, $10, whatever it is. And then you have the lifetime value of a customer, which is hopefully higher, let's say $50 or $100, right? And so if you think of a smart drop as your cost of user acquisition and you say, I'm going to spend 50 or 100 or $200 on each new user, and I believe that by selecting the right people, the lifetime value of each of these users is going to be 500 or $1,000. There have been a few studies that have been done, but if you look at the studies that are out there, the value added per new user in a crypto community is huge. You could basically look at wallet downloads versus market cap, and they're only what 30, 40, maybe 50 million wallets in the Bitcoin and Ethereum ecosystem, and they have market caps of tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So there's there's this huge multiplier with having uh, more people in the community, and this is be really intuitive. If I told you, hey, there's a new startup and they have four users, or hey, there's a new startup and they have 100,000 users already, you could tell me very quickly which one is more valuable, right? It's the one that's validated their software with 100,000 users. People are using it and, and, and getting real value out of it. That's obviously the more valuable project. And it just keeps growing from there, right? If you have, imagine Facebook was open source and you forked it tomorrow. You could fork the software, but you couldn't fork the social network effect, right? So you'd have everything Facebook has, but you'd have two users on it, or you could have the one that has two billion users on it. Obviously, the two billion version is a lot more valuable. So I, I think it can actually be additive. People think about these as as free tokens and, and inflating the supply, but as long as your user acquisition cost is lower than your total user lifetime value, you have a massive upside. So then the companies who are in the space want to grow their user base and smart jobs can assist them with that because they have a suite of services which they can offer to projects to help them grow their user base. So tell me a little bit about the features that you guys will offer. So targeted to certain investors or participants or whoever, you know, the the folks holding the airdrop are you know, seeking to target. So you have like this layer of features because anyone can do an airdrop. You just look at the all of the wallets and then decide which ones you want to send them to, write a smart contract. So the additional service is that you guys can make it user-friendly. And tell me a little bit about the other kind of added add-on services that you guys can provide through the platform that will make companies in the space who are starting, a, you know, launching a token and want to you know grow their user base or grow their community or add registrations or downloads to their platform. What going and using smart drops can bring them versus just holding airdrop on their own? 
So you can sort of think of smart drops as a model, right? And that's why I wrote my medium post and released it very much in the style that I did with the general theory of decentralized applications, right? And as opposed to building a platform that did DApps, I encouraged a whole ecosystem of players. So if you look at the post I put on Medium, we list lots of great tools that people can use to put together a smart drop, right? There's earn.com and coinlist.co and TRM and Abacus and XPO network. And there's all these tools emerging to do your tracking, do your KYC, conduct sort of the analysis of who you want to drop these tokens to, I don't think there'll be one platform. And what we're doing with smartdrops.network is just getting people to join this community, sign up. We're going to release more and more information about the tools that are coming out that make this model possible. But it's not necessarily about building a suite of software features ourselves to do this. A lot of this already exists, but it's fractured. It's sitting in different websites, different tools, different projects have this piece or that piece. So our goal is to sort of bring together a lot of those different tools so that people can leverage them. And so by signing up at smartdrop.network, you're sort of giving the information about how you can access the new projects that are coming out that are using this model or enabling this model. That's really interesting. That sounds like a great idea because there are a lot of different projects in the space that are each approaching this in their own way. And it's challenging because, as you said, it is fractured. And so a way to combine all of that into one place uh, seems like it would add a lot of a benefit to people out there who want to try to earn some tokens and don't know how or want to build their community. So what is the platform and the service that you guys are offering going to look like? Is it going to be something where users could just sign up and register and use the platform? Or are you guys looking at this from a different angle? We think there's a lot of good services that are coming together that enable different parts of a smart drop, whether it's curating lists or offering sort of ways to check identity with KYC, know your customer, So there's all these pieces out there. And like we talked about earlier, the ecosystem is really fractured. So our goal is really just give people a place to come to the website to sort of see all the different tools that are out there. And if people want to reach out to us, we have partners all over the world that do different parts of this process and we can put them in contact with the right people. But we're not necessarily going to release a piece of software that does all that. We think there are good tools and good pieces of software out there today. What we can provide is a lot of intelligence about uh, who the best players are, where the best tools are. And that's why we made this open source post and an open idea that we want to just share with the community and really encourage um, more people to adopt this model. More than anything, what I want out of this is I want when a developer comes up with a new idea for a protocol or a piece of software, they ask themselves the question, you know, should I do a token sale? Should I do a, a security token, meaning start a company and build the software under that company? I want there to be a third option where they say, well, you know, I'm just going to release this to the community. We'll see who signs up. We'll naturally, organically build um, a lot of interest with people. And 
the token can be released without a sale, without a company, without any barriers to adoption. And uh, that's sort of the third option that I want people to think about is you don't have to use a token, so you don't have to create a company. There's still this permissionless world in blockchain where you just create new software and release it to a community and you know have people sign up. And uh, if what you're building has value, then, then people will get excited about it and they'll use it, right? And that's, that's just a very natural process to me. That sounds good. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Open Savings Initiative that you guys just recently launched? Sure. So this is really exciting. This is something I've wanted to exist ever since I found out about Bitcoin in 2012. It's basically trustless savings account meaning that there is no custodian, you don't need a third party, you don't need to trust a wallet with your keys, right? That you could have a time-locked savings account on the blockchain. And that's what we created with the Open Savings Initiative. So my good friend Ricardo Jimenez made a donation to some developers and we wrote the code. And basically what it does is leverage the time-locked addresses on Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. So before the great split in 2017, time-lock verify opcode had gotten activated in Bitcoin. And so it's now in both, both forks, right? And basically what it lets you do is set a time parameter for a transaction. So you create a transaction and you say, you know, end lock time until one year from now. Right. And you form that transaction, but you can't, well, you could broadcast it to the network, but it wouldn't be valid until you broadcast it after that time parameter has been reached. So imagine all the things you can do with this. Let's say you want to make sure that you don't incur short term capital gains, which are much higher than long term capital gains in the US. So you want to wait at least one year before selling your crypto in this address. So you lock it for one year and one day. And you can make sure that you're not going to make a mistake and accidentally sell before one year has elapsed, right? Or if you've ever used Coinbase, there's a feature called Vault. And you can put coins in the Coinbase Vault and you could time lock them for release. So let's say 30 days. And the idea is it's a security feature. If your account was ever compromised, the attacker could request withdrawal of all your coins, but if they're time locked in the vault, the request will be delayed by 30 days, right? And so you can sleep well knowing that even if your account got compromised, they wouldn't be able to withdraw the funds because you'll be able to recover your account before that 30 days has elapsed and you can cancel the withdrawal. So you can think of the Open Savings Initiative, which people can just go and check out opensavings.network and they can send funds to an address and they can lock them up for a period of time and nobody can hack it because the transaction wouldn't be valid until after the timestamp. If you think about long, long term savings like social security type, I'm going to retire on these funds. You know, what you need is to remove the temptation to sell those coins, the temptation from yourself, right? And this is, this is sort of why social Safety nets exist is it's really tough not to be tempted to want to dig into your savings, you know, from time to time. But you also want to 
have a nest egg when you're 65, 75, you're ready to retire. And so what you could do is lock it up for 20 years, 30 years, whatever amount of time. And when it unlocked, you'd be able to access those funds. And obviously, you know, if crypto has become very popular and grown a lot during the time, hopefully you see appreciation on those funds. And so whether it's for short-term security or tax planning or long, long-term savings, what you can now do is basically create this savings account and it's just between you and the protocol. Nobody else is involved. So this code is live right now. You can go to opensavings.network. You can download the app and create these time-locked addresses, send funds to them. It'll give you the information to retrieve the funds. You need to write that down, back that up, store that. And then when you're ready to redeem them, you come back put in the information and send the funds to any new address that you want. But this is live today. And it's really cool because I had seen NLOCK time get included in Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin Cash, but I hadn't seen anybody really take advantage of this new feature. And the point is not for this to be a new wallet, right? We're not trying to become Bitcoin.com or blockchain.com, right? We really hope that those large existing wallets will adopt this as a feature for their users. And so we open sourced all of this code. It's available today on GitHub and people can, you know, fork it and use the code or implement it themselves if they want and just use this as an example of how we implemented it. But today what you have in a Bitcoin wallet is basically a checking account. You put money in, you can take it out. But you don't really have like a long-term savings account, like a, a certificate of deposit, if you will, or something that's long-term. And so this is basically handing a whole new feature to the people in Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin Cash ecosystem. So I'm really, really excited about that because that's something I think that will and has the potential, especially in people who live in countries with very volatile and inflationary currencies, give them a real savings option long term. Yeah, that's really cool. We'll include in the show notes a link to the opensavings.network so uh, listeners can just click on that and take a look at the platform that's live today for them to use. And it's available. Is there an option for Ethereum-based tokens or Ethereum or other? Is there plans to expand this to other types of uh, currencies and crypto blockchains and support uh, expand support for it? Well, there's certainly a lot of ability in Ethereum to do time-locked uh, smart contracts. And so I think it would be a natural extension for, for people to do that. What I would encourage people to do is, if they have an interest in that, to go ahead and contribute to the GitHub repo, right? Uh, offer up some code that would work on Ethereum, right? Offer some code that would work on other systems. We really hope people will add um, to this open source initiative, and uh, that would be great. But a lot of people think of Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin Core as, as savings and as money, and so I want to start there first. It also has the, the largest pools of, of liquidity, and so I think it's, it's a natural place to start. And yeah, you could certainly expand into Ethereum or, or other areas, but my, my hope is that we'll see... I'd love like a blockchain.info to release to their, you know, 27, 28 million users, you know, a feature that gives them a time locked savings account. 
and they could basically have a feature very similar to what Coinbase has today with a vault, but without the need to trust Coinbase as the third party, right? It's between you and the protocol. And it's beautiful too, because it doesn't add any custodial features to their wallet, right? It's not asking them to host any funds to gain that feature. They can do it naturally today. And so uh, I'd love to see that. I mean, today you in blockchain info, you've got Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, and, and Bitcoin. So it'd be great to uh, to see if all three could be supported. Yeah, I wonder if we could lay out what the specs would be to support more tokens and post a bounty for it and have someone sponsor the bounty and see if we can get someone to build uh, this type of feature to to do this on Ethereum or some other blockchains. That'd be great. And, you know, the competitive juices get going right now that Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Core have this feature. I'm sure the Ethereum community will say, yeah, we can do that, too. We we have the ability to time lock smart contracts. So I was like, great. Well, we'll do it. You know, and so we included a, a section. If you look at opensavings.network at the bottom that says, I'm a developer. Show me how this works. And you just click the arrow and it shows you all the example code and walks you through how it functions. And of course, you can see all the details in the GitHub repo. But uh, but that would be great. Love to see more bounties for uh, more projects. And maybe we could even uh, update the opensavings.network website and put some addresses on there. And if enough uh, funds are contributed to pass a certain level, we can convince the developers that did this first implementation. And uh, credit to Ransom Christofferson and the team at uh, Prestige IT out of Colorado that did all the coding and... Uh, Maybe we can convince them to do some more of it if uh, the community has an interest. Yeah, that sounds good. So, David, it was a pleasure having you on the show to talk about your current projects, and we'd love to have you back on uh, soon next time you have an announcement or news or updates on what you're working on. You're welcome to come back on and talk about it again and share with our community. So thanks for coming on the show, and we're looking forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. I appreciate the time, and uh, given how fast crypto moves, I'm sure it'll be soon. So that sounded good. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you and meeting you and hearing about stuff you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate you spreading the word about these because I think uh, both are pretty important for the industry. Like one, thinking about the fundamental choices a developer has when they create a project and how they structure those. Or two, giving the mass market access to a real savings alternative is, is something pretty cool. So glad to uh, to get more exposure for both both initiatives. Yeah, so we'll hopefully be in touch and look forward to talking again in the future. All right, sounds great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bounty Zero X podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast below. Check out BountyZeroX.io, the number one bounty hunting platform where you can complete work and earn cryptocurrency. Please consult your professional financial investment and tax advisors before making any investment in initial coin offerings. BountyZeroX does not provide investment or financial advice and does not endorse or recommend investment in any ICOs advertised on the BountyZeroX podcast or website.